Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. Lately, we've been diving into the Old Testament and the different lessons that it brings forth to us even today, even as we go through this life. And it can be considered a troublesome life because of the different things that are happening in society the different things that are happening in the religious realm of churches splitting, churches not following true to the word of God. But we also have a hope in knowing that God is still on the throne, that God still protects, and God is still about the business of saving individuals so that they can be brought to him and to his glory. So this morning, I want us to talk about America. You might be saying, well, what place does that have in the pulpit? It has everything to do with the pulpit this morning. I'd like you to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 4, focusing on verses 7 through 9. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. ask that you stand as we read God's word this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verses 7 through 9 says this, For what nation is there so great, who hath God so nigh unto them, as the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon him for? And what nation is there so great that hath statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law, which I have set before you this day? Only take heed to thyself, and keep thy soul diligently, lest thou forget the things which thine eyes have seen, unless they depart from thy heart all the days of thy life. But teach them thy sons, and thy sons' sons." You may be seated. This is the reading from God's Word. The text is a part of a sermon in chapter 1, which Moses delivers to the nation of Israel. It has been 40 years since their deliverance from the Egyptian bondage. They stand in Moab on the border of the promised land. They must enter in and battle against the mighty Canaanites. And Moses does not lay out a military strategy. But he instead reminds them of what will continue to produce greatness in them. What would produce greatness in them? And as we talk about this morning, what would bring greatness to this country? What would bring greatness to this country? Because our country is continually described as being a great nation. Yet, how do we define or measure greatness in a country? Some would suggest that America is great because of its material possessions. 
America truly has been blessed in material things. The poorest of our poor fare much better than those in other countries. But does God measure greatness in material possessions? Some would suggest that America is great because of its military power. No doubt the power of our military force is a source of great pride in our country. And some, as our church does, respect them, honor them. Because they are worthy of that honor and that respect. But is that the way that God measures greatness of a nation? Some would suggest that America is great because of its medical practices. God has given much wisdom in our land as far as medicine goes. Thousands of foreign students come to our country to be trained in our medical schools. And hospitals and people from other countries come here to be treated. We are truly blessed in the field of medicine. But does God measure greatness in that manner? Some would suggest that America is great because of its man-made policy. We are blessed as Americans to have rights. We have great freedoms. We must never take these for granted. Others wish that they lived in such a place. We have the right to choose those who represent us in government. We have the right to freedom of speech and the freedom of religion. Our court system assumes the innocence of a man and guarantees that the accused receive a fair trial. And I know there's probably grumbling already. That doesn't happen anymore. Does that mean that we give up? Does it mean that we don't trust God enough to know that he can restore all of this back to us? Some say it's our modern progression. We are a modern nation with all the things that we're up to in technology, conveniences known to man. We are a country that pushes for education and advancement. We want our children to be the most educated in the world, to go to some of the greatest universities and colleges and make their home here in our country. And most anyone who has a serious desire to be educated can receive an education in our country. Yet, does our modernness and our progression mean that we are great in the sight of God? The paradox of our time in history is that we have taller buildings but shorter tempers, wider freeways but narrower viewpoints. We spend more but we have less. We buy more but enjoy less. We have bigger houses and smaller families, 
More conveniences, but less time. We have more degrees, but less judgment. More experts, but more problems. More medicine, but less wellness. We drink too much. We smoke too much. We spin too recklessly. We laugh too little. We drive too fast. We get too angry. We stay up too late. We get too tired. We read too little. Watch TV too much. And pray too seldom. We have multiplied our possessions, but we have reduced our values. We talk too much and love too seldom, but we're quick to hate as well. We've learned how to make a living, but not a life. We've added years to life, not life to years. We've been all the way to the moon and back, but we have trouble crossing the street to meet a new neighbor. We've done larger things, but not better things. We've cleaned up the air somewhat, not here in California, but we have cleaned up the air a little bit, but we've polluted our souls. We've conquered the atom, but not our prejudice. We write more, but we learn less. We plan more, but accomplish less. We've learned to rush, but not to wait. We build more computers to hold more information, to produce more copies than ever, but we communicate less. But I don't believe that any of the aforementioned items can be used to measure greatness. At least not in God's sight. Now don't get me wrong, I'm thankful for those things and I count them as blessings from God. But I do not believe that the achievement of those things or the possession of them guarantees that we are great in the sight of God. I believe that we can find out how God measures success from this text this morning. And so we're going to look at that. And I am going to share with you this morning three ways in which we measure the greatness of a nation. First of all, a great nation is one who discerns the presence of God. Verse 7, for what nation is there so great who hath God so nigh unto them? You see, Moses reminds the children of Israel that they are great because the Lord is nigh unto them. So he discerned and acknowledged the presence of God in their greatness as a nation. I believe that one of the reasons for the blessings of God upon America in her past was the acknowledgement and commitment to God. We are to be a great people, but in order for that to happen, we must 
acknowledge God. Our forefathers who fought during the Revolutionary War, those who took, who took part in the writing of the Declaration of Independence and risked all that they had by signing their name to it. Those who have helped to govern during the early days of America were people who acknowledged the presence of God. It is said that 52 of the signers of the Declaration of Independence were devout Christians. It has further been stated that 94% of the Founding Fathers' quotes were based on the Bible, 34% directly from its pages, and 60% from men who had used the Bible to arrive at their conclusions. Let me share something with you. There are people, and I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but there are people in this world and in our country who can't stand these kind of statements. And they won't acknowledge that it is the truth. But our founding fathers desired that America be a religious nation, but a Christian nation. Listen to the inaugural address said by George Washington. It would be improper to omit in the first official act my fervent supplication to that almighty being. No people can be bound to acknowledge and adore the invisible hand which conducts the affairs of men more than people of the United States. We ought to be no less persuaded that the propitious smiles of heaven cannot be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right, which heaven itself has ordained. Sounds to me that Mr. Washington gave credit to the God of heaven for the birth of this great land. After signing the Declaration of Independence, Samuel Adams, who was called the firebrand of the American Revolution, affirmed his obedience to God by stating, We have this day restored the sovereign to whom alone men ought to be obedient. From the rising to the setting of the sun, may his kingdom come. Dr. John Witherspoon, also a signer of the Declaration of Independence and member of the Continental Congress, described as the man who shaped the man that shaped America. And he said this, God grant that in America true religion and civil liberty may be inseparable. Reverend Witherspoon was also responsible for publishing two American editions of the Bible. Benjamin Franklin, who signed the Declaration, delivered his most famous speech on June 28, 1787, at the age of 81. And he said this, I have lived, sir, a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of man. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, it is probable that an empire can rise without his aid. We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain 
that build it. This country was fought for and founded by people who acknowledged, discerned, and sought the presence and blessing of God upon America. One of the great slogans of the American Revolution was, No king but King Jesus. We must heed the warning of the scripture. The wicked shall be turned into hell and all nations that forget God. Are we a nation forgetting God? Daniel Webster, who was a great statesman, said, If we in our prosperity neglect religious instruction and authority, no man can tell how sudden a catastrophe shall overwhelm us. Do these words ring true? God has blessed over our country for over 247 years because we have been a people who have acknowledged the presence of God. But for the last 40 years or so, we have been a nation on a downward spiral. God forbid that we forget God. But yet look at the following. We know that our courts are forgetting God. Listen to the words of some early justices. James Wilson in George Washington's appointment to the Supreme Court stated, Christianity is part of the common law. Supreme Court Justice Joseph Story, which was appointed by President James Madison, called America a Christian country. Thomas McKean, the man responsible for the first legal commentary on the Constitution of the United States and, and Pennsylvania's Chief Justice, a founding father, said to a man sentenced to die for treason, it says, it behooves you most seriously to reflect upon your conduct, to repent your evil deeds, to be incessant in prayers to the great and merciful God to forgive you your sins. The justices that once occupied our courts were once men who acknowledged the presence of God, not only in their personal lives, but in this country. They were people of conviction and without compromise. But many of those who now render judgment are corrupt and cowards who have no backbone, but give in to the wishes of the few. Judge Roy Moore fought a long battle to keep the Ten Commandments in his courtroom, but had them removed when the Alabama Supreme Court ruled it unconstitutional. The Supreme Court of America ruled that the Child Protection Act, which would protect our children from accessibility to online pornography, was unconstitutional. In other words, it is wrong to post the Ten Commandments in a courthouse, but it's all right for the pornographers to spread their smut. Where are we going wrong? We are forgetting God. We are forgetting God. 
It's any wonder, really, though, when our treatment of the unborn says that life is unimportant. And because of that, our children are forgetting God. In verse 9, Moses commands that the people teach the word of God to their children. We're raising up generations of children without the presence of God. Parents are teaching their children to forget God because they have forgotten Him. I look at our church rules sheet from time to time, and I know that a lot of them have small children, those who are at the age where they need truth and they need conviction instilled in them. And the parents profess to be Christians. They would tell you that God is important to them, that church is important to them. Yet they never darken the door of the house of God. But for over 60 years, we have said to the children that prayer has no place in the classroom. We have relegated prayer to a moment of silence in some school systems. And students are being taught that homosexual behavior is completely appropriate and acceptable. But they don't ever mention the word of God. Our children have been taught that creation is for those who are ignorant and that no intelligent person believes the creation story. They have been taught that evolution is fact. They are being treated as animals with behavior that cannot control, so they need to protect themselves. We've taught our children that faith is something that should remain silent. Our children have been taught that life doesn't matter, that the unborn are nothing more than human tissue which can be disposed of. We've made games out of violence, and our children are acting them out. And parents, listen to me. We've taught them that marriage and family are no longer important concepts because we don't keep our wedding vows. Our children are growing up without God. And I thank God we have a place here that our children are getting away from that. That they are being brought up in the truth of our Lord. So I thank God every single day for that and for all of you that work with our children. Thank you. Thank you. In our country, churches are forgetting about God. We're forgetting God by compromising scriptural principles. Solomon fell victim to the same temptations that the rest of us so often face. He compromised on what he thought were small concerns, matters that he probably considered well into the gray areas, if you'd speak. To do things his way, rather than God's. And the danger of such reasoning is that small compromises weaken character. And over time, they lead to major sins. As for Solomon, the results were devastating. His experience is a warning of what will befall us if we follow his example 
of compromise. If we start corrupting our sacred pledges, if we begin condoning sinful practices, you see, because Christians are not to condone sin as condoning sin means the Christian accepts the sin or possibly even celebrates the sin. Sin is nothing to be encouraged or celebrated. All people are sinners, and we will continue to struggle with sin throughout our lives. But the Lord does not want us to actively seek out sin and condone it. The Apostle Paul speaks about people condoning sin in the book of Romans. Paul was proclaiming the truths of God's word to the church of Rome, and he was telling them what happens when a person deliberately lives in sin and refuses to accept the truth of God's word. The people Paul was referring to had committed a myriad of sinful acts, and they were condoning those who practiced those sinful actions. Paul tells the church of Rome about these people. He says, They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, and no mercy. Wicked, evil, sinful acts were being conducted by these individuals, and they did not have any remorse for their wicked behavior. Paul continues to say, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, They not only continue to do the very things, but also approve of those who practice them. The individuals who Paul speaks about were aware of God's commands, just like we as a nation are aware of God's commands. Even those who do not know Christ, they know what they say. You know, statistically speaking, that an atheist knows more about God than most Christians? A religious sect that does not believe in God knows more about God and relationship to God than we do as Christians. Is this not a problem from anyone else? This is clearly condoning sin, and Paul does not represent condoning sin in a good light. As Christians, this still rings true for us today. We should never condone sin in our lives or in any other's lives. To condone sin would mean that you accept the sin, approve the sin, and even encourage the sin. Remember the condition of the church in Laodicea. God on the outside looking in. 
God have mercy on our souls when the churches themselves will not only not stand for what is right, but will actually endorse that which is wrong. People denying the scriptures and the deity of Christ, the ordination of alternative lifestyle-minded individuals, That's what we're facing today. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. For the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. It begins here. We want to change things. We want to go back to the way it was, which I don't know that's even possible. But if you want to make a difference while we're here on earth, what we've been called to do by God, the Great Commission, it starts here. It starts right here. A great nation is also one that depends upon prayers to God. As the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon him for. Moses reminded the children of Israel that they had a God that was nigh unto them and who heard them when they prayed. The first settlers in the land as well as our forefathers were people who believed in the power of prayer. Do we believe in the power of prayer as a church? I can't hear you. Do we believe in the power of prayer? Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the most beautiful and most touching paintings, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it is the one of George Washington on his knees at Valley Forge. Story. There was a man who witnessed Washington praying at Valley Forge. It says this, I was riding with Mr. Potts near the Valley Forge where the army lay during the war of the revolution. When Mr. Potts said, do you see that woods and that plain? There lay the army of Washington. It was a most distressing time of year. And all were, give, were for giving up the ship. But that great and good man. In that woods, pointing to a close in view, I heard a plaintive sound of a man at prayer. I tied my horse to a sapling and went quietly into the woods. To my astonishment, I saw the great George Washington on his knees alone, with his sword on one side and his hat on the other. He was at prayer to the God of the armies, beseeching to interpose with his divine aid as it was his crisis and the cause of the country and of humanity and of the world. Such a prayer I never heard from the lips of man. I left him alone praying. I went home and told my wife, we never thought a man could be a soldier and a Christian. But if there is one in the world, it is Washington. We thought it was the cause of God and America could prevail. One man praying could spark the confidence of many.
On October 3rd, 1789, Washington would proclaim the first national day of prayer. We need to return to being a nation dependent upon the God who answers prayers. Second Chronicles 7.14, which we sang this morning. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. God's people need to pray. God's people need to pursue, seek his face. God's people need to purify. We need to turn from our wicked ways. And finally this morning, a great nation is one that is dedicated to the principles of God. Verse 8, and what nation is there so great? that hath statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law, which I set before you this day. In the early 1830s, a Frenchman named Alexis, and I'll probably butcher this name, de Tocqueville, came to America to examine its civil institutions. And he studies all of this when he comes. And his studies were spelled out in the classic work, Democracy in America. And in it he wrote, I sought for the greatness and genius of America in her commodious harbors and her ample rivers. And it was not there. In her fertile lands, in her fields and boundless prairies. And it was not there. In her rich mines and her vast world commerce. And it was not there. Not until I went to the churches of America and heard her pulpits aflame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power. America is great because America is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. De Tocqueville, who was also the author of Democracy in America in 1835, wrote, There is no country in the world where the Christian religion retains a greater influence over the souls of men than in America. We can return to that. And this is not me <laughs> running for office. Am I passionate about my country? Yes. But I am more passionate about people returning to God. Returning to the ways we've been called to. Returning to the life that God has set out before us. Returning to believing in the truth. Praying. Trusting in God. Being faithful. Understanding it doesn't matter what this country does or says. I trust in God and in God alone. God has blessed America because 
She is a nation that was founded upon principles of the word of God. But we must heed the warning of the scripture in Proverbs 14.34. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is reproach to any people. If America does not repent and return to the principles of the word of God, we will go the way of those that lie in ruins. Don't think that God won't judge America. Don't be foolish enough and proud enough to think that God will wink at our sin. I believe that we are a nation hanging on by a thread. And only God's patience and restraint have we survived this long. Whether or not our grandchildren and great-grandchildren enjoy the freedoms that we now enjoy. But will that be the case in the future? Will they very well be dependent upon what we do now as a nation and as a nation under God? I don't have an answer to that. I am hopeful, even in the midst of the trials and the things that befall us in this country. But looking beyond that, I look upon God's people and I pray for them. I pray that we're able to reach those in time so that they too can know the peace of having God in our lives and knowing that he'll take care of things. Not relying on other people or politicians or people that just want to blow smoke up your skirt and tell you things are fine and these are the way things ought to be. We must return to the word of God. That's where we find instruction. That's where we find the way to restore things to the way they were because that is what we were founded on. So we must go back. Amen? Dave. Tim, would you put up You Are a Holy God, please, for us? Thank you. Let's stand together, please. Every day, it begins with acknowledging this.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your provision. Thank you that you love us in spite of our inequities, Lord. And I pray that as we leave here today, that we are given the opportunity to tell others about you, to bring them into the kingdom life. Lord, it is a treacherous, treacherous place we live in. But Lord, you are right there by our side, and you watch over us, and you guide us, and you lead us to where you would have us be if we only trust and believe in you. I pray for our country. I pray for its direction. I pray for its leaders. I pray that you would be able to restore us to what we were once. But Lord, we continue to be hopeful and faithful to you regardless. Thank you, Jesus, for this day. And we give you the praise. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a great day, Lord. Please welcome Miss Tiffany. The Bible says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.